The Mortification of the Flesh, Chapter 9 On falling again into the same sin, and finding the taproot of your bosom sin. There are two more cases of conscience which I intend to address in this chapter, and they are, number three, whether a man whose lusts and corruptions are truly mortified by the Spirit of God, whether they may commit and fall often into those sins that are mortified. And number four, what symptoms often betray a bosom and beloved sin that is most unmortified in a man? I shall then give some general helps which may be prescribed toward the mortification of a bosom and beloved sin. In the next chapter, I will conclude with specific directions on how to mortify unclean lusts, spiritual pride, and reigning anger or passion. Case number three. Is it possible for a man that has truly mortified a sin by the Spirit of God to fall frequently into that sin? And I shall answer by way of these five or six particulars. Number one. We have some examples in Scripture of men that did not fall again into the sins that had been mortified in them. Letter A. It is said of Judah that after he was shown his sin in abusing Tamar, his daughter-in-law, that he acknowledged his offense, quote, and he knew her again no more, close quote. Genesis chapter 38, verse 26. When he saw his sin, he confessed it, and he fell no more into that sin afterward. Letter B. We find another example in good King Jehoshaphat, when the prophet Eliezer came to him and told him of his sin in joining together with wicked King Ahaziah, and that the Lord was angry with him for it. That's Second Chronicles chapter 20, verses 35 through 37. Well, after this reproof, he would not bring the guilt of that sin upon himself again. For when Ahaziah asked Jehoshaphat if his servants might go along with Jehoshaphat's servants aboard their ships, Jehoshaphat refused. That's 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 49. Number two. We have no explicit examples in all the Bible of a man who, having mortified and subdued a sin by being humbled for it, ever fell into that sin again. I'm not the only one to observe this. William Perkins has also said that in all the examples of the Old and New Testaments, he does not see any instance of a man who had mortified a sin ever falling into that sin again. Therefore, if your sins are mortified and yet you continue to fall into those same sins, you are a man without a pattern. Number three. Now, although there are no examples to be found in Scripture of a man falling into the same sin after having mortified that sin, 
And yet there are many examples of good men that have fallen repeatedly into the same sin before they knew it to be a sin, before they were sensible of that sin, and before they were truly humbled and grieved for it, seriously considering the evil they had done between God and their own souls. Solomon fell twice into idolatry before the Lord, 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. Peter fell three times, one after another, into the sin of denying his Lord and Master, Matthew chapter 26, verses 69 through 75. And the sin of Israel, or I'm sorry, and the children of Israel, fell ten times into the sin of murmuring against the Lord while they were in the wilderness. Numbers chapter 14, verses 20 through 23. Thus, before a man is truly humbled for a sin and has mortified it, he may fall often into that sin. Number four. Although there is no example of it in the Bible, Yet, according to reason and experience, it may be true that a man who has mortified a sin may fall again into the same sin that he has repented of and been humbled for. The learned Mr. Perkins gives this answer, quote, There is nothing in reason and experience that can assure you that a corruption which has been mortified, may not break forth again after you have repented of it, especially if it is an inward and secret sin. Close quote. For example, suppose the sin is anger. Though you strive against it and pray to God every day to enable you by His Spirit to subdue and keep it under, yet upon some extraordinary provocation your anger may break out again and I can attest to this because that's mine thus inward and bosom lusts may break out again after repentance for them number five though there is no example of it in the Bible that a man who has mortified a sin has ever fallen into the same sin again Yet there is also nothing in the Bible that clearly speaks against it or teaches you that you cannot fall into the same sins after they have been mortified. This may be a partial comfort to you. And I would also add that the Lord Jesus had told his disciples that if a person falls or if a person sins against you the same sin 70 times 7 times that you're to forgive him. We should remember that. Number six, falling into a corruption a second time by committing the same sin after it has been mortified argues that there still remains a great deal of the strength of sin in the soul, though it does not argue that there is no grace in that soul. And here I shall only add a word or two by way of caution and then proceed to the final case of conscience. Letter A. Falling often into the same sin 
puts you at great risk of developing obduracy and hardness of heart. Therefore, I dare assert that if you fall again and again into the same sin, you are very likely hard-hearted and do not have a tender and sensible heart within you. Letter B. Falling often into the same sin will cost you many tears and prayers before you obtain peace of conscience. And I, your narrator, can attest to that one as well. You may obtain pardon, yet lack peace of conscience and assurance of your pardon for a very long time. Letter C. It is a deadly and dangerous symptom for a man to fall often into the same sin. I do not say it is damnable, but it is certainly dangerous and deadly, a sign of death upon you. It is like a man who relapses into the same disease. At first, when the man is sick, the disease feeds upon his ill humors. And if he recovers, he is better and healthier for it afterward. But if the man falls back into the same disease, then the distemper feeds upon his vital spirits, whereas before it fed upon the corruption and ill humors in his body. Thus, with regard to your spiritual health, it is no less dangerous to relapse into the same sins. Case number four. How can a man learn to discover his bosom and darling sin, which of all others is the most predominant and unmortified in his soul? And this is a very necessary question. And I will give you ten signs to help you discern and ascertain your beloved or master sin. Number one, your bosom or master sin is usually that which you most frequently act out or fall into over the course of your lifetime. As the things which most occupy your conversation reveal what captivates your thinking, and so also the sin you most often commit reveals your heart's most unmortified and beloved corruption. Therefore, Consider what sin it is that you fall into most often. For example, sexual impurity, drunkenness, dishonesty in your trade, spiritual pride, and so forth. The sin you fall into most frequently is often your darling and unmortified sin. Number two, your bosom sin is the one that you most readily yield to whenever you are tempted. The sins that you oppose and rarely fall into are not your bosom sins, but rather the sin which easily besets you, as the Apostle says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. That is your master sin. Are you easily drawn aside to drunkenness? Well, if so, then this is your master sin. Therefore, I beseech you, beloved, examine your heart so that you may find the sin that is most unmortified in you, and then marshal your greatest strength against that sin.
reflect on your conduct and see what sin it is that most easily besets you and corresponds most exactly to your natural disposition. This is your master sin. Number three, the sin that you are most unwilling to part with among all others. This is the sin which is most unmortified in you. Thus the scriptures compare such a bosom sin to the right eye or right hand. Matthew chapter 5 verses 29 through 30 implying that a man's master and beloved sins are as dear to him as the members of his own body. Therefore, when you find yourself unwilling to leave a sin, you may rightly conclude that this sin is your master sin. Number four, the sin which, of all others, does most vex and gall your conscience that sin is most unmortified in you. The conscience is God's messenger within you. It checks you when you do ill and speaks peace to you when you do well. If you persist in ways of sin and pursue a sinful course, your conscience will haunt and dog you never allowing you to enjoy any peace. Now, carefully examine your own heart. There is not a man among us, that means everyone in mankind, men and women, whose conscience does not check him from time to time, convincing him that the course he is following is an evil one. Look carefully for the sin that your conscience checks you for the most, and you will find your bosom and master sin. Number five, the sin which, of all others, does most insinuate itself into your heart when you are in the service of God and performing holy duties, well, that sin is most unmortified in you. When a sin can be so bold as to intrude upon your heart when you are in the very presence of God, this is your most unmortified sin. Therefore, beloved, examine your own heart. Which sin is it that of all others does most haunt you on the Sabbath day? troubling you when you are trying to worship your God? Which sin is it that, like a dog, follows you to church, disturbing your hearing of the sermon and whining in your ears on fasting days? Well, that sin is your master sin. Number six. Your bosom and beloved sin is the one that your enemies most upbraid you for, and your friends most persuade you against, and yet you have no power to leave. Another said it well, quote, I am more indebted to my enemies than to my friends, for when they are angry with me, they tell me all my faults, reviling me, 
with every sin that I am guilty of, close quote. Now what sin is it that wicked men most upbraid you for and cast in your teeth? What sin do your friends most persuade you from, saying, Oh, friend, walk no more in this path. Do not be guilty of this sin any more, and so forth. The sin that your friends most persuade you from committing is your master and most unmortified sin. Therefore, I beseech you, beloved, deal impartially with your own soul. Search your heart and see. Don't your enemies sometimes upbraid you for some sin you have committed? And don't your friends persuade you from it, saying, For the Lord's sake, follow this sinful course no longer, or the like? Well, you may be confident that this is the sin which is most unmortified in your heart. Number seven, the first sin that comes to mind, accusing and afflicting your conscience when you are in desperate circumstances, when stricken with a serious illness or upon your deathbed, in prison or poverty or some other such calamity. Well, this sin is most likely your master sin. Recall the story of the sons of Jacob. They were never troubled for their sin against their brother Joseph until they were in dire straits. Now, when there was a famine in their own land, they went down into Egypt to buy bread. And there, Joseph, their brother, knew them well enough, yet they did not recognize him and he would not reveal his true identity to them. And he accused them of being spies, whose intention was to search for the land's weakness. Thus he cast them into prison. And when they were in prison, they said one to another, quote, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. Close quote. Genesis chapter 42, verse 21. For twenty years they never thought of this sin, but when they were cast into prison and affliction, then they remembered it and were troubled for it. Your master lust is the sin which galls your conscience more than any other when you are afflicted. Number eight. The sin which of all others you can least bear a reproof for. This is your master sin. Perhaps you can bear an admonition for some sin. But when a man hits the nail on the head by rebuking you for your master sin, you cannot endure that. Thus, some theologians observe that had John the Baptist reproved Herod for any other sin but taking Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, it is probable that Herod would have left him alone 
Matthew chapter 14, verses 3 through 4. If ministers only reprove sin in general, well, men can bear this well enough. But when they address a person's particular sins by telling one man, you are a drunkard, and another, you are a whoremonger, and so forth, they cannot endure this rebuke, which shows that these are their master sins. When in the parable of the vineyard, the Lord Jesus Christ asked the chief priests and Pharisees what should be done to the wicked men who killed their master's servants, including his own son. And they answered that these men should be destroyed and the vineyard leased to others. Matthew chapter 21, verse 41. But when they perceived that the Lord Jesus Christ was speaking this of them, and that they themselves should be destroyed, then they cried out, God forbid! When he spoke in general that these wicked men were worthy of being destroyed, they acknowledged it to be just and right. But when they realized he was speaking of them, they could not endure it. And from that time forward, they labored to kill him. These are verses 45 through 46. Number nine. Your bosom sin is the one which you most often gratify and knowingly allow yourself to commit. And thus was Naaman's master sin revealed when he made accommodations for indulging himself in the sin of bowing down to Rimon, 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 18. The sin that you most indulge in and use the least means against, this is your master sin. Number 10. The sin which all other sins serve and contribute to that sin is your bosom sin. For example, suppose pride is your master sin. Well, you will use deceit in your trade, false weights, lying, and so forth. Anything that will help you to uphold your pride. And the same is true of any other sin. And now we come to the use of application. Thus, I have finished describing the fourth case of conscience. Now, I would only share with you a short application by way of caution from the discoveries that you have made of your bosom lust. Number one, in the presence of God, I call upon you to examine your own heart so that you may discover your master sin. Number two, when you have found it out, although you should be vigilant against all sins, yet especially bend your strength and care against this sin. Be watchful and wise concerning your own heart, so that you do not fall into this sin. David said, quote, I have kept myself from mine iniquity, close quote. That's Psalm 18, verse 23. Oh, beloved, 
be sure to put forth the greatest part of your strength against the part of your soul which sin and the devil make their strongest assaults. Fight not so much against small or great as against your master's sin. Number three, know and consider that it is the greatest hypocrisy in all the world to go about mortifying other sins while leaving your bosom and beloved sin unsubdued. Would it not be foolish for a sailor to seal a minor leak in the ship's hull when a great hole was left unattended, allowing great quantities of seawater to rush in? Well, it is no less foolish for you to strive against small sins while leaving your great and master sin unmolested. Number four, take heed of being mistaken in thinking that your bosom sin has been mortified when in reality it has not. Well, perhaps when you were younger, your bosom sin was lust, but now that you are older, it is covetousness or worldly-mindedness. One sin may be your bosom sin in your youth and another in your old age. Take heed of thinking that your bosom or master's sin has been mortified when it has merely changed. Number five. Once you have discovered your bosom lust, you should immediately set to work in subduing it and rooting it out of your heart. When your bosom lust flares up in your heart like a fire, devote your attention to quenching it, working against it, and mortifying it. And now we come to the section for discussion or personal reflection. Number one, is it possible for a believer who has, with the help of the Holy Spirit, truly mortified a sin to fall into the same sin again? Explain your answer. Number two, from what the author has written, what clues can be used to help determine one's bosom or master sin? Why do you think it is important to understand which sin is your darling or master sin? And finally, number three, what general helps does the author provide for beginning the process of mortifying our bosom sins? That's the end of the chapter.